We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. I will ask you this morning to open your Bibles to the six chapters, the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to be reading just the first few verses of the chapter so that we can familiarize ourselves with it or begin to anyway. This is what the Word of God tells us. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And And this we will do if God permits. May the Lord bless this, the reading of his word this morning. We are still in the parenthesis that began at the previous chapter, the last few verses of the previous chapter. And here we see an exhortation and an encouragement. We see God's faithfulness to his promises. As we said week before last, we said that this parenthesis begins... This is the, um, the third parenthesis in the book, from verse 11 of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter, uh, to the end of chapter 6. But from verse 11 to, chapter 14 of <clears throat> to verse 14 of chapter 5, I'm sorry, we enter this third parenthesis, and here he is rebuking these believers for their spiritual immaturity. He opposes the subject he had begun to discuss regarding the priesthood of Melchizedek because he knows, led by the Holy Spirit, and we know the Bible is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, even when a writer puts a parenthesis there, even where he puts a comma or a period or a semicolon, every little bit of the scriptures in their original manuscripts is inspired by the Holy Spirit and there is no mistake in it. So the writer is led by the Holy Spirit and realizing that these believers are not ready to understand what he's trying to explain to them regarding the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is higher than the priesthood of Aaron. And for this reason, he pauses uh, to rebuke them and then to encourage them. He exhorts them to grow and mature spiritually. So we said that in the first parenthesis, he addressed their drifting away from the Lord. In the second parenthesis, he addressed their doubting the word. And now he addresses their dullness toward the word. This is a big warning for all of us. Never become dull when it comes to the scriptures. Every time you open the scriptures, you need to be excited about it. Amen? Because the word of God is always the same. How many of you have read different portions of scripture time and again and again and again. 
And do you find every time you read them that there is something new you had not seen before? One time I remember many years ago, I opened John chapter 17. Now, when you miss a verse or a phrase, but when you miss a whole chapter, and I said, where was this chapter before? And I have already read it so many times. But there are moments when the Holy Spirit opens your understanding and you see this. Not that you didn't see the chapter before, is that now you see it in a more glowing light. And God will open our understanding. He opens our understanding in proportion to our obedience, in proportion to our maturity, our growth. And it's just like us when we went to school, where they taught us things little by little, and they built upon that, right? Imagine, you go to school and you start a first grade. Do they teach you algebra? Ridiculous. You wouldn't even know whether you're coming or going, okay? So the same thing with the scriptures. I mean, we have the Bible here. We have all the same 66 books all the time. But the Lord opens our understanding. As we grow, as we mature, as we understand basic things, then we go on, go on to other things. So here the writer is exhorting them. First he rebukes them, tells them that they are children. They need milk and not solid food. Okay? And then he, you know, when you uh, correct somebody, it's not only rebuking. It's not only about rebuking them. You also need to exhort them. You need to encourage them. Okay? And this is what he does now at the beginning of this chapter. Okay? That's why uh, and we enter one of the most, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, I want to say, say this to you. This is one of the most debated and misinterpreted portions in all of the Bible. So many people draw wrong conclusions because they don't accurately divide the word of truth, okay, like God commands us to do. They are too uh, quick to come to uh, uh, um, a conclusion just to sometimes show that they know what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. I remember years ago when I first got saved, that was either 1975 or 1976. We were in the little basement, the church up in the Heights. And uh, who do we have? We had Dr. Charles Ryrie speak to us one, one Sunday. He was the uh, professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he wrote many books, many of them being translated to Spanish, too. I have a lot of his, you know, quite a good number of his books. Dr. Ryrie, <coughs> he's, with, <coughs> he's with the Lord now. <coughs> and I remember I asked him a question, bold believer that I was, and I said, Dr. Ryrie, could you please tell me when Saul the king summons Samuel after he died with, where, when he went to the witch at Endor? Was that Samuel that came up or was it a, de a demon? And I'll never forget, Dr. Ryrie said, looked at me and he said, I don't know. And to me, that was of the greatest value because I realized early in my Christian walk that the man had enough humility to say there are things that we don't understand. Okay? I don't know. That was a better, much better answer than if he had told me, yeah, it was this it was, or it was that. I appreciated that, and I do to this day. And that did not discourage me. On the contrary, it encouraged me. 
to go on with my walk and what? Become a student of the word of God. Okay, so we, we see the, uh, <coughs> the exhortation here to press on to matu maturity. So this is one of the most debated and misinterpreted portions in all of the Bible. And for this reason, it is important to keep in mind certain important principles of biblical interpretation. The first eight verses of this chapter 6 must be interpreted in the context of the whole book of Hebrews and its background. Remember, a text out of its context is a pretext. Amen? Remember that. You know what that means, right? You know what it means? Should I ask anybody? Would you know what it has answer me? I'm not going to embarrass you. A text out of context means you pick up a verse, take it out, and interpret it by itself without what's going on before or what's going on after. So you need to interpret, always you read the Bible, interpret the context. Don't take anything out of context and say, it means this. Okay? Always interpret according to the context of either the whole chapter or the whole book of Hebrews in this case, or the whole Bible. Okay, because as we said earlier, the, those who received this epistle were Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah who were considering going back to Judaism, uh, um, rabbinical Judaism, because of the persecution they were suffering. And they thought they could go back to the Levitical order for the time being and then get saved all over again when persecution abated. In other words, persecution starts, so we go back to where we came from until it passes. Then we come back. That's not the idea. Okay, this is what the writer is trying to tell these believers. You don't do that. Okay? Now, another thing is the, the fact that it must be interpreted in light of the immediate context. And when did the immediate context begin? It began in chapter 5, verse 11, as I said. That's where the parenthesis began. So sometimes don't go by chapter division, especially in the New Testament, because the chapter divisions are not inspired. Sometimes you have to go back before the, uh, the chapter begins, in this case, chapter 5, verse 11, and start reading from there, okay, all the way to the end of chapter, or chapter 6, in order to get the whole context. The theme here, what is the theme here? The theme here is spiritual maturity. Now, is spiritual maturity the same as salvation? Is it the same subject? No, okay? Like I know some people who say that, oh, see, you can lose your salvation because Jesus said in John chapter 15 that the branches that don't bear fruit, you pluck them away and you throw them in the fire and they are burned. You're going to hell. No, 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 no. That chapter is not talking about salvation. It's talking about discipleship and fruit bearing. Amen? Not every time that you open a Bible, the Bible, and not every chapter, not every verse is talking about the same thing. Is that clear? All right, so in this case, the theme here is spiritual maturity. So bear that in mind. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about spiritual maturity. The writer has been exhorting them to grow and become spiritually mature. And you know what? That is the desire of God for all of us. The Lord wants us to mature. Just like you, are, you want your children to grow up physically and mentally and emotionally. It, one of the saddest things in the world is when a parent has a child 
that is a mentally defective or emotionally defective. Somebody, sometimes they can be perfect physically, they can even be perfect mentally, but emotionally they are not, for whatever reason. And the father and the mother praying, Lord, help my child. And they're trying to help the child to become better, to meet their needs. Well, God wants us to grow. We already grow physically automatically, don't we? As soon as we're born, we eat, we sleep, we begin to grow. But spiritually, it doesn't happen automatically. You got to work at it. That's why it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation, but it says work out your salvation. In other words, bring fruit. And the Lord wants us to be fruitful in our lives, in our walk with him. So here, the writer has been exhorting them to grow and become spiritually mature, leaving behind their infant state of drinking milk and go on to maturity and eating solid food. Many years ago, somebody complained because every Sunday I was preaching a different message and complained because I never preached evangelistically. And I said, first of all, that is not true. I always give the gospel. And secondly, who are you going to evangelize? The evangelized? Are you going to preach the gospel to the Christians to get saved when they already are saved? What do you want to do? Preach John 3.16 every service? The Lord doesn't want us to do that. The Apostle Paul says that he taught the believers the whole counsel of God. Amen? And that's why in this church when you come, you learn because what? If you want to, right? You learn because we teach the word of God. We teach solid food. All right? And sometimes I stop and I make, you know, go back, make a parenthesis, whatever. Because I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about. And don't just nod your heads and say, yeah, pastor, yes. And you don't know what, what is going on. That's not the idea. The idea is for all of us to grow. Amen? That's what God wants. That's not what Pastor Alex wants. I mean, even though he does. But this is what God wants. All of us to grow. Because the more mature you are spiritually, the stronger you will be. Okay? And don't think that if you grow stronger and you mature, things are going to get easier. They don't. They don't. Trials don't end in this life. Only when we get to heaven shall we have peace. Amen? Now, am I trying to discourage you? No, I'm trying to prepare you. Keep going on ahead. Okay? We must also remember the scripture does not contradict itself. The Bible never contradicts itself. God is not confused. God doesn't say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. We just sang it in one of the hymns. What did it say? Thou art forever what? The same? It means that God, his essence is always the same. His program might change. His way of doing something might change according to the age, according to the... the uh, uh, dispensation, but God is always the same. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in Malachi, it says, I am Jehovah, I change not. Okay? So remember that God is consistent, and so is His Word. His Word does not contradict itself. 
And for this reason, this passage must be interpreted in accordance with biblical truths taught elsewhere in the Bible. If Scripture teaches eternal security in many other sections, one verse cannot contradict what is taught in other parts of the Scriptures. One of the basic rules of biblical interpretation is that difficult passages must be interpreted using the clearer ones, the easier ones. Okay? So, therefore, it says in the first verse here, and I'm taking my time to give you this introduction and teach you the background of this chapter because I want you, it's a difficult chapter unless you really study it well. Amen? Unless you learn what it, why, the background of it. Okay? Am I boring you? Are you bored? You sure? You're not just saying that to make me feel good, right? Okay, all right. Now, therefore, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles in Christ, in the first three verses which uh, we, we just read, the writer emphasizes the importance of leaving behind these basics of Scripture and moving on to more important and better things. The word therefore connects this section with what was said in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. That's why I said to you, when you read this section, start with verse 11 of chapter 5 and read right through the division, the chapter division, into the, to the end of the sixth chapter. Now these believers needed to use the knowledge they already had and go on to perfection, the word perfection, that is, to press on for more truth. Perfection here is the same word used in 5.14 where it says full age. It means what? It means maturity. Perfection here means maturity. Because we know there is no such thing as absolute perfection in this life. Amen? How many of you realize after you got saved that you were still not perfect? Thank you, John. You're the only one, I guess. Um, I realized that a few days after I got saved. Wait, wait, why is this still going on? Well, the Lord does not take away your sinful nature yet. He will take it away the day he comes back when you're resurrected or when you are raptured. Then in glory you will have a perfect, a perfect personality, a perfect nature. But until then, you have two natures. And if you don't believe me, read Romans 7. You'll come very quickly to realize the Apostle Paul had the same struggle. That which I want to do, I don't do. And which I don't want to do, that I do. And as Galatians, walk in the spirit that you may not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If we were free from the flesh, flesh, flesh doesn't mean this. It's not the meat. It's not the skin. It's not your, your, your bones. It's the nature, the Adamic nature. We still have it. And it's there. And it fights against the new nature when we got born again. And that struggle is there. And it will continue to be there till the day you either die or the Lord comes back to take, take you home. Hmm? So... Believers here, when they're told, press on to um, maturity, uh, press on to perfection, is talking about maturity, spiritual maturity, which is exactly what God desires for every believer. What is that? To leave behind 
abandon the ABCs and press on to spiritual maturity, and that's called spiritual progress. We all went to school or are going to school, right? And one of the first things they taught us was what? The ABCs. In my case, I had to learn twice. In Spanish, ABC, and then in Greek, Alpha, Vita, Gamma, at the same time. Six years old in first grade. But did they spend the rest of their lives teaching us the ABCs? No. Imagine you go to university and you're still learning A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That would be awfully embarrassing, wouldn't it? Huh? It would be embarrassing if you're in sixth grade and you're still doing that. So imagine spiritually is the same thing. Some people, all they talk about is, yeah, Jesus died for me. Yes, I'm saved. And it's, amen. You need, we need to talk about that. But that's not the only thing we talk about. We need to go on to higher and deeper things. That's only the beginning, not the end. Okay? So that's what the writer is telling them here. Grow up spiritually, spiritual progress. Let us go on. Should be let us be carried forward. It is God who enables our progress and growth as we yield to him, as we accept his word and apply it. Okay? First we hear his word, right? Are you all here in the Word of God today? Right. And then what do you do? After you hear it, you must accept it. Beware of ever getting up from your seat and coming up to me and tell me, I don't agree with that. Wait. Oh. God doesn't need our opinions. He needs our faithfulness. He needs our submission to his word. And that's why I say unto all of you this morning, one of the problems that we notice in churches, I notice in believers, <coughs> is that they have a subjective faith instead of having an objective faith. What is the difference? The difference is this. Subjective faith is based on emotions. You subject your beliefs to your emotions, and your emotions are king, and they're the ones that control your life. You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to be going like this. Total instability. But objective faith is based on the word of God, and you, ob you look at things objectively based on scripture, not based on how you feel. And this happens with Christians even in this church. Okay? So I see some people texting back and forth in ch group, uh, you know, uh, chats, groups, this, that. Oh, we're praying and the Lord is going to do it because I am praying. Let's have faith. Wait a minute. Chapter and verse, please. You know what that can do? That can discourage other believers because when God doesn't come through according to your expectations, then you say, well, God didn't do it. And I'm not going to mention names, but we're having a situation right now 
of somebody who's seriously ill. And I read all these chats, and I was getting madder by the second. And I posted there, and I said, nobody knows how it feels until you go through it yourself. Let us pray for the family at this moment. God did not guarantee to us in any chapter and verse that he's going to perform this or perform that. If it is his will, it will happen. God is sovereign, not us. Your prayer is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And many Christians pray for their will to be done in heaven instead of God's will to be done on earth. So my question is, what do you hear and what are you listening to when you come to church? Do I preach the word of God for you to get up, leave the place and act like a Pentecostal? Hmm? That only shows me one thing, their immaturity. Make sure that when you say something, it is based on the word of God, chapter and verse. Now, is God able to overrule anything? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. God can do anything. But just because God can do anything, it doesn't mean that he will do it. Maybe his will is something different. God doesn't always give give us the easy way out. Because he did not allow his son to be spared the cross. He did not stop Nero from beheading the apostle Paul and crucifying the apostle Peter upside down. He would not have allowed the apostle James, the brother of John, to be killed by Herod Agrippa I. He would not have allowed Stephen to be stoned to death. He would not have allowed millions of Christians who perished in the flames of the Inquisition in Europe or the uh, slaughter of so many many Jews and other people in World War II. Is God still sovereign? Yes. God is not sovereign only to fulfill our conveniences, but his will. And he told us, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Lord gave us a victory which is a lot greater than, spirit, than physical healing or, you know, worldly peace. Because he promised us, my peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know what the Lord conquered already? My dear friends, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord already conquered death, conquered the devil, conquered hell, conquered the world. And when we go through trials and tribulations, like these Hebrew believers were, 
those trials and tribulations we go through in order to mature and grow. Because nobody grows under good times. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of banquet, of mirth. Because it is in difficult times that we grow spiritually and it is in difficult times that we grow closer to the Lord and to one another. So, having those things in mind, let us grow as we accept his word, as we yield to him, accept his word, and not only accept the word, listen to me, but apply it. James says, it is not the hearer of the word that shall be blessed, but the doer of the word that shall be blessed. You can know the Bible inside out, from Genesis to Revelation and then some. But if you do not apply that in your own daily life, it profits you nothing. So we must apply the word of God. What you learn here in church today, take it home. Write it down. Take it home. Review it during the week and live it out. Live it out. Okay? There's so many Christians. I have so many Christians that are just theoretical Christians. They're so, oh, amen. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And when the time comes for somebody whose needs need to be met, they look the other way. We don't need that. We don't need that. Now, just as a baby does not grow by himself, but grows as he eats, sleeps, and functions in his normal life, so God has ordained that Christians grow as they eat the word, rest in him, and function being doers of the word, not just hearers. It is abnormal for a baby not to grow physically, so for the believer not to grow spiritually. It's a must. The writer lists six basic truths which are common in both the Christian and the Jewish faith. No wonder, since the Christian faith is based on the Jewish faith. It is the fulfillment of it. Now, these six basic truths are in sets of twos. Okay? In sets of twos. The first set has to do with conversion. The beginning of spiritual life. The second has to do with ceremonial elements and the believer's relationship with his local assembly. And the third set has to do with the future or what is called the eschatological doctrines or the doctrines of the last days. The second coming, the millennial kingdom and all those things. That's why it says here in our text once again, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. This speaks of the first basic, first basic principles of the faith. In other words, the ABCs, as it were. Perfection here, in verse 6-1, is the same, as we said before, as the word or the phrase full age in chapter 5, verse 14. In other words, the previous verse. It has to do with maturity. Let us go on to maturity, would have been a better translation. Let us go on to maturity by not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Okay? 
Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and all those things that we learned at the beginning of our Christian faith. This is the first doctrine to be left behind. Notice that I say to be left behind, not to be left out. Amen? It's already in. But we leave it behind because we go on to something else. These believers are exhorted to turn away from the Levitical system since it had, it, it had become, or by, you know, when they were living, it had become dead works. For this system was temporary and has come to an end with the death of Christ on the cross. Now, though it was still practiced by unbelievers, for the temple was still standing at the time that Hebrews was written, God did not consider it effectual in a, a, a consider effectual any longer. And that's why he says to the uh, believers in Colossa, a couple of books before, a few books before uh, Hebrews, in chapter three, verse uh, thir- uh, chapter two, I rather say, verses thirteen and fourteen, he says, "And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh." He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Okay, it's talking there about the Levitical law. That's the first doctrine. The second doctrine to be left behind is faith toward God. This is the positive side of conversion. It is turning to God. It is the commitment to Christ which brought brought salvation to them in the first place. They are exhorted to go on from here. You got saved already? Yes? All right, so you need to go on from here. You need to grow now. You've been born again? Yeah? So now you need to grow. That's what he's telling them. And that's what the Word of God tells us today. Now, the third doctrine is the teaching of baptisms. The plural use of the word refers most likely to ceremonial washings and cleansings of the Levitical system, not the baptism of believers. It's talking about when the priests went inside the tabernacle. They had to what? Wash their feet, wash their hands, change their clothes in order to be able to go in there and worship and and serve. And what the writer is telling them here, let's go on beyond that. Don't go back to that law. Okay? The fourth doctrine is the laying on of hands which in the Old Testament meant imparting blessings. It was also continued to be practiced in the New Testament. You lay lay none of hands. We do that here. We did that here for the deacons. They did that for me. Pastors, uh, friends of mine, when the church was established, and by the way, our church is going to be 30 years old this August. Amen? So let's start working towards that. Inviting people, coming some nice food. Amen? Celebrate it. Because sometimes we let our church anniversaries go by and nobody realizes. Our church is going to be 30 years old. August the 21st. And you know who was here at the beginning when we, even before we had the building? When we began meeting in the park? Yeah, Jose Mayen. He was here for two Sundays. And then he came back for the church inauguration when we were at the... Uh, Lutheran Church. Were you there that day? Yep. Okay. The Lutheran Church. That was back in 1992. January of 1992 that we went into the Lutheran Church. 
no, I'm sorry, we went in October, but we had a inauguration formally in January of 1992. But our church began in my home in Co-op City, August the 21st, 1991. That's the day the church was founded. But we need to go on from there. And uh, so many people live focusing on the past. I used to do this, and I used to do that. And I, yeah, amen. You all used to do all those things. Wonderful. Keep looking back at them once in a while, but don't dwell on those things and don't look forward. It's like driving the car, always looking at the rearview mirror. You know where you're going to go? You're going to crash. Okay? A second meaning of the laying on of hands in the Old Testament was the appointment to an office or special task, like that of a priest, for example. In the New Testament, elders and deacons <coughs> were appointed using the same method in Acts chapter 6. And in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul instructs Timothy to lay the hands on others, you know, for the ministry. And the third meaning of the laying on of hands in the Old Testament was for the purpose of identification. When the priest laid hands upon the, the head of the sacrifices, this identified the sacrifice with Israel, whether in an individual or in a national sense. The priest will pray over the animal. It was called the, you know, the, uh, uh, the goat or the, the, the lamb that was to be, or the, the bull that was to be slaughtered. The priest put his hands on the head of the bull and put all the iniquities, symbolically, all the iniquities of the nation of Israel or of an individual on the bull. And the bull was killed. And that was symbolic of the person dying. That was substitutional death. All those sacrifices pointed to the one sacrifice of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? So what we're told here is, let's go on. The fifth doctrine is the resurrection of the dead. This too should be left, uh, left behind because it should have been already settled since this too is an Old Testament doctrine. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19.25. That is the oldest book in the Bible, perhaps. And Job already knows that the Redeemer lives when the Redeemer hasn't even come the first time yet. And the sixth basic doctrine is that of eternal judgment, such as the white throne judgment and the lake of fire. All these six things are the ABCs or basis of the faith. And they are on milk and they should be settled once and for all in every believer's mind early in their spiritual life. These are the things that must be left behind and press on to maturity. That's why it also says, and this we will do if God permits. It's not that we're going to abandon these doctrines and not teach them anymore. Yeah, but we're leaving them behind in the sense to grow and to other things so you can learn the whole counsel of God. And when we need to touch upon them, we will touch upon them. Okay? It is like saying you already know the basic doctrines of salvation. Now leave those behind and press on to better, more mature things. This is God's will, and it must be the believer's will as well. God wants us to grow, but we must want it too. 
You cannot force a believer to grow. Some people just, just don't want to grow. Not too long ago, I spoke with a young man, not from our church, and he had some problems. And I said, listen, buy this book. I read this book. It's wonderful. It really helps. He bought the book while he was talking to me on the phone. I said, I already got it. I said, great. He got the book. Have you read it? I just began to. Good. A couple of weeks later. Are you still reading it? No, I'm not. If somebody doesn't want to do it, you just, after a couple of times you try, walk away. They're just wasting your time. Some people just don't want to grow. God wants us to grow, but we must want it too. Otherwise, you know what? It will not happen. That's why you are Christians, and you have to continue changing the diapers. Here we are, 30 years later, still changing diapers. The teacher here is willing to do it. Believers must be willing to receive the teaching as well. It is God's will for every believer to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he does not force anyone, he he does not force anyone to mature. God doesn't force anyone to mature. If a believer is indifferent, God will not force him. But he will never grow and reach maturity. Okay? And uh, it will be his or her fault, not God's. Remember, if you do not progress in your spiritual life, you will regress. There's no such thing as neutral. Or you can think of uh, neutral and an uphill. Try it. Put the car in neutral on an uphill. See how far up you go. You'll not progress. You will regress. And at a great speed, I guarantee you that. Unless you put the brake on. So that's what the, the writer is telling these believers. Leave the elementary things behind. Let's go on to maturity. Let us grow spiritually. That's what God wants us to do. Amen? That is his will. Is it yours? We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash cbt hyphen sermons.